You can't turn a corner at a valley intersection without seeing a whole bunch of campaign signs. Mailboxes are full of glossy campaign ads. It is officially primary season in Arizona. I'm Mark Brody. On today's Here and Now, we'll get an update on how those campaigns are going. Also, could a recently enacted law designed to stop people from collecting and turning in lots of ballots at once be in legal jeopardy, as other voting-related laws have been struck down in other states? Art sales are down in auction houses and galleries around the valley and elsewhere. We'll find out by how much and what galleries are trying to do about it. And an Arizona athlete who's heading to Rio de Janeiro for the Paralympics. We'll find out how she overcame an amputation to compete in triathlons. That and more is ahead on KJZZ's Here and Now after a check of this hour's news. Good afternoon. It's Here and Now on 91.5 and KJZZ.org. I'm Mark Brody in Phoenix, sitting in today for Steve Goldstein. Later this hour, the evolving demographics of art galleries, and we'll meet an Arizonan headed to Rio for the Paralympics. But first, politics. The signs are up and the ballots are out. Arizona's primary campaign season is full on here leading up to August 30th. And joining me to get a sense of what's going on out on the campaign trail is Matthew Benson, a director with the Phoenix-based firm Veritas. Hi, Matt. Good to be here. So are you seeing anything surprising so far? I mean, I, I guess we can't be surprised at the number of signs cluttering up the valley intersections. But are you seeing anything in any of the, the campaigns, especially uh, for the federal races, that is surprising to you yet? I think the biggest surprise has just been uh, the difficulty some of the candidates have had getting traction. And in some of these primaries, take, for example, CD1, CD5 here in Metro Phoenix, you have so many candidates, you know, a half dozen in CD1, uh, four in CD5. So it's really difficult for, for the candidates to kind of break through the clutter, especially when so much uh, of the air has been sucked out of the room by the presidential race and, and one candidate in particular, uh, Donald Trump. Is that a function of the number of candidates or, or the candidates themselves, do you think? It's both. And again, it's largely a function of so much attention focused on the top of the ticket races, including the U.S. Senate race here in Arizona getting a fair amount of attention. Let me ask you about that Senate race. Uh, one of the contenders on the Republican side uh, dropped out a couple of weeks ago. It basically seems at this point like it's uh, John McCain versus Kelly Ward. Does Ward have a chance here? I mean, is there any chance that John McCain loses this race, do you think? Well, there's always a chance, but I don't expect it this time around. Uh, he has he has been successful in raising the kind of money he needs, and, and, and really more, this, this race is about what she has been unsuccessful at doing. And by that, I mean unsuccessful at getting the kind of uh, national money behind her to break through and, and really paint... Senator McCain as, uh, you know, just another incumbent, part of the establishment, et cetera, et cetera. She has been unsuccessful in doing that. And, and I think we'll see the results of that later this month in the primary. Well, those messages are getting out, though, but they're coming from his presumptive Democratic opponent, Ann Kirkpatrick. It seems as though McCain is, is himself looking sort of beyond the primary. Camp ads from his campaign are already attacking Kirkpatrick as opposed to going after Kelly Ward. Yeah, and, and well, he should be, uh, because I think Ann Kirkpatrick represents a much more significant challenge to him uh, in, in the long term than Kelly Ward does. 
On the congressional side, you referenced a couple of the competitive races, CD1, which is much of eastern Arizona, northern part goes down to Sierra Vista. It's one of the largest uh, congressional. I think it's larger than some states in this country. Also, uh, CD5, uh, in mostly in the East Valley. Those are, are fairly competitive. What are you seeing? Let's start with, with CD5 here in the East Valley. What are you seeing happening in that race so far? You know, in CD5, you had uh, one candidate, uh, Christine Jones, break out into an early lead. She was the, the first candidate to, to start spending significant resources of her own. Of course, uh, former executive from GoDaddy. So she's got some resources behind her and, and she put those resources into play. And the, the funding, or I should say the polling, what, what polling there has been, uh, indicated that she broke out and uh, was up somewhere between five and seven points. Uh, so what we've seen now is the other candidates, Don Stapley, Andy Biggs, and some of the supporters, uh, like the Club for Bro- Club for Growth, which is backing Biggs, have started spending some significant dollars of their own attacking Christine Jones. So uh, as, as an outside observer, what I'll be looking for is the next poll that shows whether they've brought her back to earth some or, or not. Uh, I, I still think in a lot of ways she has... Uh, some intangible ad- advantages in that race, just given her business background and and given the fact that she is the only woman in that race running against largely uh, folks who've been in in politics for some time. When you mentioned that that they have been in politics for a long time, Don Stapley, obviously with the County Board of Supervisors, Justin Olson has been in the legislature for a little while. Andy Biggs has been in the legislature for a very long while. Matt, you covered the Capitol for a long time. I covered the Capitol for a little while. Do we overstate how much recognition members of the state legislature have in the general population? I mean, Andy Biggs has represented the district for a long time. But does that really, we know who he is, but do people in that district really know who he is and people in that congressional district really know who he is? Well, okay, you are correct that those of us who follow the Capitol generally overstate uh, the importance or, or the impact with voters of, of a legislator running for a higher seat. I mean, how many speaker, speakers of the House have, have been unsuccessful in running for Congress, for example? Many it, of them. Many of them. In fact, uh, uh, you're hard-pressed to come up with those who've been successful running for Congress. Uh, now, a, a smaller metro area district like, like CD5, uh, I, I think that is more likely that the voters in that area are going to know in Andy Biggs, for example, especially since Matt Salmon, the incumbent congressman, uh, basically uh, did all he could to hand the keys for the for the district over to Biggs and endorsing him. Uh, but a better example would be in CD1, where the current Speaker of the House, speaking of which, David Gowan has gotten absolutely no traction in that district. That is a large district. Uh, like you say, it, it touches practically every part of Arizona. I think it's the size of Connecticut. And, uh, and you've seen David Gowan again. You know, I think he's polling in the single digits, even though he is the Speaker of the House. I mean, to what do you attribute that? The, the good folks of the White Mountains uh, and Coconino County and, and a lot of those areas. You know, David Gowan is from Sierra Vista. Sort of the very southern tip the, of that The district. very southern tip. So they may know and like him in Sierra Vista, but the folks in Pine Top and the White Mountains are not impressed and likely don't know who he is or what he's done. I want to ask you one more question about CD5, and that is about these commercials that uh, Christine Jones has been putting on, where she's basically comparing Andy Biggs to President Obama and Nancy Pelosi. Is this a tactic that you think is going to be effective? (laughs) It's hard to... uh... 
it's hard to imagine many folks who follow that that district or state politics in the slightest are gonna are gonna think that Andy Biggs resembles Nancy Pelosi or, or Barack Obama in the slightest. I I think the ad that is more successful for her and more effective uh, is the one with the the the, the cutout uh, the the. The, the cutout cardboard figure. The guy in a suit. The guy in the suit uh, and her kind of walking among them and, and you know, asking if, if any of them have ever created a job, you know, that, that that's a much better ad, especially when she's running against, again, a, a field of uh, of men who are in suits and have been in politics for a long time. I want to ask you about this report that uh, the Hillary Clinton campaign is going to be putting some money into Arizona, seeing that it, it may be uh, competitive in November. I want to ask, first of all, what, what, do you, what do you make of that? You know, a couple things. One, this is the kind of gamesmanship we see every cycle about this time when a state like Arizona that traditionally is not in play starts to look like it might be. And so uh, one side or the other is going to start talking about spending big money in that district and r- really it's all about positioning and trying to get the other side to overreact and they want they want the RNC and Trump to spend significant money in Arizona defending it uh, because every dollar they spend here defending Arizona is a dollar they're not spending in Wisconsin or Pennsylvania or Florida trying to take a, a blue state and make it red. So, so that's what's going on. Look, here's what I look for. I want to see the actual money come in the door. It's fine for them to talk about a few hundred thousand dollars to fund field workers. That's great, whatever. But I want to see when that, if that race is actually close after Labor Day, if they start dropping million dollar, multi million dollar investments in Arizona, then I'll believe it's in play. For now, I'm very skeptical. When you look at some of the polls and some of the work from like Nate Silver and others who show this very Arizona being very close in November and in some ways, Hillary Clinton, even with a better chance of winning, depending on what day you look at, at 538. Do you attribute that more to, as you described, shifting demographics where folks have for long said that Arizona would eventually turn blue? Or is, do you think that's just a function of the, the GOP candidate? I think it's 95 percent a function of the GOP candidate and uh, a lack of enthusiasm on the right and a, a, some excessive exuberance uh, on the left to defeat him. So that's the kind of results you see. But look, in 2014, the, the electorate has not changed. The demographics have not shifted significantly since 2014, a year in which Republicans in the state swept every statewide office, uh, including some uh, where, you know, like a Diane Douglas, for example, was getting very little mainstream Republican establishment support and Ed won nonetheless. So I, I don't think... Uh, I don't think, frankly, 2016 is going to be a lot different. And if I'm the the DNC, if I'm the Clinton campaign, I'm not spending a dollar more than I have to in Arizona so long as Florida is uh, plus one for for Hillary and and Ohio is within a point or two. Those are much bigger prizes. Arizona is kind of – that would be icing on the cake for them. They don't need it. Matthew Benson is a director with the Phoenix-based firm Veritas. Matt, thank you. Thanks for having me.
As voters fill out and then send in their ballots, the courts may soon decide whether those envelopes have to go right in the mailbox or whether someone can collect them and turn them in on the voters' behalf. A pending lawsuit challenges a new state law banning the practice critics call ballot harvesting, and it's just one of a handful of election and voting-related laws that have been struck down across the country. That's over the past several weeks in states like Texas, North Carolina, and Kansas. Now, each of those states' laws is obviously slightly different, but each dealt with voting ID in some form. Reporter Hank Stevenson writes about this in the Arizona Capital Times, and he joins me now. Hey, Hank. Thanks for having me on. So tell me about some of the laws that have been struck down in other states. What have they focused on? Well, as you said, most of them touched on voter ID. And we already have a pretty strong voter ID law here in Arizona that was challenged years ago, upheld. Um, But they also touched on a lot of different aspects of voting, like the North Carolina law, for example, that was struck down. Um, shortened the time frame that voters can uh, vote early. It also eliminated same-day voter registration. And then the voter ID, uh, it said basically you have to use these certain forms of voter IDs. Um, and the court said essentially that Africans, Amer- African Americans are far less likely to have those certain forms of ID. And that was the main reason that they struck that law down. Um, There were Wisconsin had eliminated uh, in-person early voting on the weekends. That was part of their voter ID law. So most of them are wrapped up in voter ID stuff. But there's also all these other little kind of sidebars to the main voter ID law that are getting them in trouble as well. Now, that argument about a law having a disproportionate effect on minority groups, African-Americans or Hispanics, that's one of the arguments that folks here are making against the so-called ballot harvesting law, right? Yeah, basically. Um, I mean, this has been a tactic that was uh, popular li- popularized by Latino get-out-the-vote groups, uh, especially really came to fruition in the, uh, the Pierce recall election when then-Senate President Russell Pierce, uh, a huge anti-immigrant um, supporter, uh, was actually recalled from his office the first time in history, in large part because of these Latino groups going out and effectively gathering all these ballots um, and making sure that they made them to election officials uh, in opposition to Pierce. Now, the lawsuit that is in front of a judge here in Arizona, it's, it's not just about ballot harvesting. There are, there are some other things in there, including some of the fallout from the presidential preference election. Can you re- sort of remind us what, what all is in that lawsuit? Because it seems pretty broad. Yeah, there's a, a couple things. The one that is kind of on the fast track right now that's already been discussed in oral arguments in the federal court is the ballot harvesting part. Um, but there's several portions to this law. Uh, the plaintiffs uh, also want um, some sort of federal court oversight over Maricopa County's polling uh, plan, make sure that they have enough polling places so that the presidential preference election isn't repeated where we saw those really long lines. Um, They're also trying to get a change to the way that counties count provisional ballots. Um, And a lot of times, I mean, the main reason that people have to fill out provisional ballots is they go to vote on election day and they go to the wrong voting place. They could be within all of their same districts, you know, legislative district, congressional district, but they're at the wrong place. Or they could be outside of the legislative, their legislative district, one of the smaller district boundaries. Um, but within their congressional district. So the, the, the plaintiffs are arguing that the county should count those votes when they can. So if you vote outside of your legislative district, 
but within your congressional district, instead of throwing out the entire ballot, you throw out the vote for the legislative district and keep the vote for congressional district president, you know, statewide races when we have those. On the ballot harvesting issue, as you say, there have been oral arguments and the law took effect with many other laws over the weekend. But Maricopa and Pima County officials have basically said, "We, we don't know what to do with this. Like, we can't really do much about this in time for this year's election. Does that, in your mind, give the judge maybe a little more leeway as far as maybe not having to rule like right this minute? Yeah, I think some people were kind of surprised that that didn't come up in the oral arguments. Um, But I I think at the end of the day, the fact that this law is on the books is going to prevent large scale ballot harvesting. You know, the groups that have traditionally done it are not going to be out there trying to get 10,000 ballots because that puts their volunteers at risk. So I think the pressure is still on to rule before the primary election. And, you know, generally this tactic is used in the final days of the election after it's too late to mail in your ballot. And you can, of course, go and drop it off yourself, but a lot of people don't have that kind of time. So they trust these volunteers to take their ballots and, and drop them off, especially in those those final days of the the election cycle. So I think the pressure is still definitely on to get a decision and then there will be appeals and it'll be ongoing. But at least we'll have some um, some some road already laid to figure out what to do this election cycle. Does it seem like the laws that we've discussed in other states? I mean, is that is there any precedent there? Does that matter in any way to what the judge here might do with this lawsuit? I mean, not necessarily because they're not the same laws. Uh, you know, they're, they're not even all that similar. Arizona's uh, one of the few areas where uh, there are large scale uh, ballot harvesting efforts, a real kind of organized uh, campaign of ballot harvesting or ballot collection. Um, but I think, you know, the fact that they're all kind of being challenged under the, the same things. Uh, I mean, they're looking at the Voting Rights Act. They're looking at uh, the 14th Amendment as the main basis for these challenges. And that's that's the exact same route that uh, the, that uh, election advocates have taken in other states to striking down these laws. Based on the people with whom you've spoken, did you get the sense that people on both sides of the ballot harvesting issue are going to be watching what happens this year extra closely to bolster their argument or try to rebut claims from the other side about the effect of this practice? Oh, absolutely. I think that, you know, it'll be very closely watched to see if, you know, people are still doing it, even though elections officials say they're not enforcing it. And as I said, you know, we're going to be going through appeals. So there's, you know, no reason that these groups won't be paying super close attention to see what happens and, you know, maybe bring that up in court at a later date. Is there a concern that depending on when a ruling comes, like it, it, it people might just not know. It might be kind of confusing as to what the, the rules of the road are for an election. I think it's already confusing. You know, the fact that the election officials are saying we're not going to enforce this leads some people to think, well, then it's legal. But that's not really the case. It's just that they specifically are not going to be busting people. There could be, you know, undercover law enforcement operations. There could be just people calling the police to complain if a volunteer goes by their house and asks them if they want to, you know, want to give over their ballot. Um, So I, I think that that'll that'll definitely be something that people are watching. Hank Stevenson is a reporter for the Arizona Capital Times. Hank, thank you. Thanks for having me on. And still to come on KJZZ's Here and Now, we'll look at the evolving demographics in art galleries, and we'll meet an Arizona Paralympian. That and more as Here and Now continues. KJZZ is supported by Keystone Montessori, an AMI-certified school in the Ahwatukee foothills, serving children from 18 months to 15 years. Now enrolling in their toddler and primary programs, KeystoneMontessori.com. You're listening to Here and Now on KJZZ at 91.5 FM, KJZZ.org, and on our mobile app. 
In Valley traffic right now, if you're exiting I-17 northbound at Cactus Road, be on the lookout for a collision in the intersection there. Around the state right now, mostly sunny and 68 degrees in Flagstaff. It's 79 in Prescott, 89 in Casa Grande. Cloudy skies and 79 in Tucson, 96 in Yuma. Well, a special thank you to our Leadership Society members, Dottie Duncan and Andrew Roberts, for their generous support in bringing programs like Morning Edition and Marketplace to KJZZ. For more information, visit leadership.kjzz.org. Right now, with 50% relative humidity, we have mostly cloudy skies in Phoenix, and it's 91 degrees at 1126. It's Here and Now on KJZZ. I'm Mark Brody in Phoenix. Art galleries have become a big part of areas of the valley, think Roosevelt Row or Old Town Scottsdale, but art sales have been on the decline. Christie's International, the auction house, reported $3 billion in sales during the first half of the year, which is down a third from the same time last year. Sotheby's, another auction house, is down a quarter during the first half of 2016 compared to 2015. And galleries have also reported dipping sales both here in the valley and elsewhere. Joining me to talk about this are Paul Eubanks, co-owner of Gallery Russia in Scottsdale, and Ellie Bocaracci, associate director and art critic at Tilt Gallery, also in Scottsdale. Welcome to you both. Thank you. So tell me, first of all, how have, how have sales at your galleries been over the past few years? Paul, I'll start with you. Well, I, I would say we all compare it, like to compare it to the grand old days of 2005, 2006. And when you compare it to those great days, uh, everything is down. Now, I would say it's a, it's a rocky wave over the last few years. You have one year if you have certain clients that come in and you do better than you think, and then other years are a little flatter. And so all in all, I'd say flatline to, to optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> Ellie, how about at Tilt? Um, I'm just actually really new to Tilt. I'm uh, soon going to celebrate my first year anniversary with Tilt. But uh, what I do is that I compare every month with the year before. And I think Tilt has been, I mean, I cannot give you any numbers off the top of my head, but um, I, I think that Tilt has been doing really good. We've been... Um, exposed to new clientele, and we've expanded our audience. So I think Tilt has been doing really good over the past year. How are you trying to expand your audience? Because I would imagine that if you just rely on the same group of people to come in every so often and buy art, like people, I don't think, probably buy art all that often, right? So like, how are you trying to expand your, your customer base? Well, um, we just try to collaborate with other art institutions within the Valley. And um, through that, we get a lot of exposure. And then uh, we just try to think creatively and outside of the box. So we come up with different plans. Uh, we give free consultation to people because we want to. Ha- we have this young collectors program. And when I use the term young, I don't necessarily mean age-wise. I mean maybe the uh, better term for it is emerging collectors. So you can be at any phase of your life and then you decide to collect art. So we give uh, free consultation. Uh, I mean, we at Tilt, all of us started collecting art at such a young, young age. So we know that um, we know actually the pleasure of living with meaningful art pieces. So we want to have that opportunity available for other people as well. We also do other programs. Um, we celebrate arts leaders in the Valley, which we call Nightcap. And then we have another program, which is called Night Rise, which is uh, for celebrating um, arts leaders outside of the Valley. So we do different things. We just try to come up uh, with different programs and just be involved as much as possible. 
Paul, how about for you? I mean, are you are you trying to to expand your your customer base yeah, somewhat? It's 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 very much a constant battle, and and really kind of the uh, lead in to any meeting we have uh, over the years. We've we've been in business in one form or another for 25 years here, so we've kind of ran the gamut. Um, we constantly, obviously, work on the website to try to make the website work in places you don't. We've we have been increasing social media great to a great extent uh, with our Russian art. You know, we obviously have a little bit more of a niche. We have been really ramping up international website presence and uh, international partnerships, referrals. I work with a couple of dealers in Moscow now to where we're able to uh, broker large paintings out of European collections to Moscow buyers. Uh, We do a newsletter, and we were very insistent on doing a printed newsletter. Uh, When most galleries are moving towards uh, electronic newsletters and catalogs, we figured that a hard print copy had a good... um, pass around ability, if you will, and we we have seen that. People don't throw our catalogs away and actually collect them, and we tend to get a lot of calls and say, hey, I saw this catalog somewhere at a friend's house, and, you know, could you send me one? So constant battle. We're always looking for new partnerships and things, and I'd, I'd say it's been moderately successful, but a lot of a lot of potential still. You mentioned uh, trying to increase your online presence. Do, do you sell art online? Yeah, pr- primarily, I, I would tell you that the majority of online online sales in art would be under a certain price range, and, and I would say that's under twelve hundred. So you get into some of the finer art galleries where we do have art in that price range, but a lot of our paintings are, are quite expensive. Um, so not to the extent of most people think of getting on and looking at a painting to eBay or something. Our website is there primarily for existing clients, referrals from existing clients, people who somewhere in the world are familiar with our artists, and it does. I'm working with my largest client at the moment uh, from back east, and uh, he found an artist he liked on on our website about four months ago. So right when you think it doesn't pay a lot of dividends, <laughs> one little lead leads into a, uh, you know, a, a client that just keeps buying. Ellie, have you found that an online presence is important to keep sales coming in? Yes. Um, for us, it's actually a way of living and thinking. So we do this um, hashtag tilled life because this is literally how we live. We live with art and we want to share that experience with everybody else. And we do everything that Paul mentioned. And I think I agree. It's really important. And coming up with hashtags, um, especially do um, having affordable art available. We have tilt shop, which we're going to have it available on our website um, next week, hopefully that we have more affordable art, um, people can purchase it online and um, directly without having to, um, you know, have inquiries. But then for other art pieces, if someone contact us, then yes, we would have it available to them. But mostly um, this our tilt shop is actually inspired by the idea of museums. So yes, I think it's important. Now, when you talk about more affordable art, how, how much are we talking? Um, well, I would say anything under... 150 would be um, affordable, I think, um, because if someone's interested in uh, purchasing an artwork, if they absolutely love it and they want to have it, because I think at the end of the day, it's about uh, finding um, a good home for every single art piece. So we are willing to work with people to have that art piece through installments or however they want to really do it. Do you find that there's more competition for art? Now, I mean, we've talked about online. You can go to a lot of places online to buy art. You can go to Target to buy art if you want to. I mean, is the, is that competition sort of squeezing out galleries that are dedicated art spaces? 
I, I would say, and this this is this is kind of a tough one to talk about because um, everybody has their own opinion, but you learn more about art the longer you've been around it, and there are, there is better art, and it's not that common. When you deal with really the world's greatest artists, it's not competition. The problem is, is when you know the majority of clients just don't care about art as much as you do, or an art historian, and and you can't blame them. If something makes them smile, something happy, then in that sense, yes, it, it is competing with this. Uh, we have people in multi-million dollar homes that work with some of the top designers in the country, and they'll literally buy a museum painting from us from 1950 or something, and, and they'll tell the designer they bought it because the girl in the painting reminds them of you know their daughter. So when you're dealing with people who are you know, just buying art because of the aesthetic value, which may be the whole reason for art in the first place, it, you know, you do potentially lose sales to some of that. For the real fine art connoisseur, uh, things like that, they're always going to go to the more reputable galleries with the really high-end top, top art and quality trained artists, though. Ellie, you talked about how you and a lot of your colleagues started collecting at a very young age. Do younger people still collect art? Like, is that still, is that still a thing that, that people aspire to do? Um, I would say, well, yes and no. It depends, I think. But once you start collecting, then you realize how different your life become. You kind of get hooked on it, right? Yes. Um, I especially can talk about photographs because it may be interesting for you to know that 60 to 80 percent of the activity that goes on in your brain is about deciphering visual data and visual input that your brain gets. So it's... um, it's actually really interesting. Today, one billion images are uploaded on the internet daily. So we, I mean, we are exposed to images and this exposure is nothing compared to what was before. Um, but at the same time, I mean, sharing, it's been to a point that sharing photographs has become our second nature. But um, at the same time, I think people are not as visually literate as they think they are. So it's important for them to understand art pieces. Are we talking about art art? Are we talking about craft art? You know, it's different. So um, I think collecting art is one of the ways to train yourself a little bit. Well, on the subject of photographs, I've been curious about some of the commercials that I see on TV, especially for for Apple, where they show these beautiful images, and at the very end it says, shot on an iPhone. And it seems like anybody who has a cell phone in their pocket now can take a photo. It could be a very beautiful photo. They can print it, they can get it framed, and they can hang it on their wall. They don't need to go to a gallery to buy something because they're creating it themselves. Has technology sort of made us more of a DIY art culture where where we don't need to buy art because we'll just make it ourselves? Um, I, I would say absolutely. They're, and it's fun. I mean, anytime you have easy access to something that you can then take a great photograph, and maybe you're not even a photographer, but you know, you take one photograph of your daughter, like my wife did, at the butterfly exhibit, and it was just amazing. You know, the world's greatest photographer couldn't have done that <laughs> if he tried. So then you get online, and you, you blow it up to this size, and you can make magnets, you can make prints, and you put it on canvas, whatever. So from that aspect, absolutely. 
again, there is other side though, and that is, you know, there really are a few truly talented artists out there, just like, you know, there's people that write best-selling novels, but then there's people that win the Nobel Prize for writing. Those artists, you know, you, you have to go through a gallery or know the artist directly, and that is art that generally tends to last for a very long time versus something that maybe, you know, after a year you've, you've kind of looked at and said, ah, oh, that was fun, but kind of tired of it. Well, so I guess how do you convince potential buyers that what you're selling, what, you know, these great artists have done will be better on their walls than, you know, the image that somebody took of the beach or of a forest or, or some landscape that they took? Well, it, it, it's funny. You know, there's very obviously different variables. But over the years, it took me a long time to realize this, that my favorite artists, ironically, were the ones that instantly I did not always like. Um, if an artist shows me 10 new paintings and they're all something that I like, it's generally because I've seen other artists painting that way. Occasionally, though, great artists come along where they actually challenge you, and you're like, wow, now that's a little different. And those are the artists that generally, over a long period of time, I end up growing to admire more and more. And you end up 10, 15 years later, you know, you still are enthralled with that painting. The uh, kit, There's no kitsch factor. There's no overt commercial factor. Um, you don't confuse that artist with a thousand other artists, whether it's in Target or websites or whatever. And, and if you really look, there, there are artists like that, and I think most people naturally pick those artists out. Ellie, lastly, Paul mentioned at the very beginning of the interview about sort of gallery owners looking, you know, back to the glory days of some of the early 2000s about how, you know, people come in and buying a lot of art. Do you think that what galleries are seeing now, is this the new normal? I mean, do you think, you, do you think your, your gallery will ever go back to, to the way it was? I don't think so, because um, it's all about um, change. And I think we're all um, evolving and we're ready to adapt. And as long as you um, are willing to change and you're willing to think creatively and outside of the box, you'll be fine. I mean, uh, Paul and I are both on the uh, board of Scusto Galleries Association, and we are trying to do the same thing with our planning for the next year. We have an, uh, a very good event event planner for this year, and we're just trying to think as creatively as possible, come up with um, really fun and interesting events to just have them and absorb more audience. Ellie Bocaracci is the associate director and art critic at Tilt Gallery. Paul Eubanks is co-owner of Gallery Russia. Both are in Scottsdale. Thank you to both. Thank you, Thank you so much. much. Thanks for having us. Writers often talk about finding beauty in things that other people don't necessarily find so attractive. And that appears to be the case for my next guest. Poet Rosemary Dombrowski's new collection of poems is called The Philosophy of Unclean Things. It comes out this fall. Dombrowski is the founder of Rinky Ding Press and a senior lecturer at ASU's downtown campus. Rosemary, welcome. Hi. Thanks, Mark. So tell me about the title of your new collection, The Philosophy of Unclean Things. Like, What, what does that refer to? 
Well, I thought about that before I came in because I had a feeling you'd asked me. Uh, <laughs> I, I was raised by a germaphobe, so I think at least subconsciously that's where the title came from. And most people know me to have germaphobia. I think I had a textbook case of it by the time I was in my 20s. And uh, it's better today. You shook my hand when you, when you walked I in I did, today. but then I went to the restroom and washed it. So <laughs> no offense. No, none taken. None taken. <laughs> so, I mean, in, this, in these poems, you, you sort of look at, you kind of look at life through the lens of germaphobes and other, mm-hmm. other kinds of, of conditions like that. I, I don't mean to use condition as a pejorative here, mm-hmm. but how did you... How did you get that lens? I mean, I, I assume that you do not have all of the things that, that the, the protagonist, I guess, in your poems sees the world through. Well, I have been interested in various kinds of disease and decay for a long time. Um, and that probably harkens back to my first book, which is uh, a sort of lyrical ethnography of autism uh, because it's a culture that I'm sort of an honorary member of given my son's severe autism. So again, disease, decay, uh, cognitive disability, those are things that have interested me for years. But I think just from a a larger perspective, difference, just acknowledging difference and exploring difference um, through lenses that most people would consider odd and and not necessarily find appealing. Well, so how I mean, how do you how do you look through that lens and come out the other side with something that you want to put on paper? Well, I think anytime that you're exploring things that people are sometimes reticent to talk about, that's something to be proud of on paper. So for me, it's a celebration of oddity. It's a celebration of difference. It's an opportunity to look at these things from a human perspective and come out on the other side, maybe even more human, better understanding the ebb and flow, the process of decay and regeneration. I mean, it's a very human process. I just like to look at it from a microcosmic perspective because I think that's what a poet is supposed to do. I think you're supposed to put things under the magnifying lens or the microscope and look at them in a more intense way to get others to look at them at all or think about them at all. So, I mean, we have to be OCD, basically, is what I'm saying, in order to do this kind of work. Well, so what are some of the, I mean, you, you talk about, you know, using poetry and putting it under a magnifying glass. What are some of the, the challenges and what are some of the opportunities in doing that in poetry, which is in many ways shorter and fewer mm-hmm. words, you have to be a little mm-hmm. more concise than, you know, just writing a, writing a short story or a novella or even a, a full-on novel? You know me, and so you know that I'm obsessed with poetry in general. Um, I'm obsessed with poetry as a form, and and I like the short form because I probably have a little bit of ADHD as well. Uh, (laughs) So it works for me, but I think my goal has been uh, over the last 10 years to use poetry as a vehicle for telling these kinds of stories to prove that poetry can be used as a vehicle for telling these kinds of stories. It's not the archaic art form that people think it is. I'm seeing a resurgence of slam. I think everybody is over the last decade. Um, We've certainly seen more popularity of that. There's lots of YouTube channels. High school kids are competing in slams all over the country now. So I think that this is just another way to expand poetry's visibility and expand its uh, valuableness in the marketplace. Is it a tough sell? I mean, e- even though like slams are, are becoming more popular, people are, are still reading poetry, obviously. Is there, are you still fighting sort of a perception problem? I think we always will because there's the perception that the poet is all ego. I think that's probably our biggest battle right now because everyone assumes that the novel writer and the fiction writer isn't necessarily writing from a perspective of, self-knowledge or understanding or awareness or that the protagonist is them. 
when you're dealing with poets, the assumption is always that the protagonist is them and the speaker is them. And so I think some people have an aversion to it for that reason. You know, all these poets do is talk about themselves. Uh, but the self is a gateway into humanity, into understanding humanity. The issues that we deal with as individuals are gateway individuals that allow us to connect with other people and to feel that human connection that I think poetry fosters. You referenced your, your first book, which is about life with your nonverbal autistic son called The Book of Emergency. What led you to write that? You know, just him being diagnosed with autism and me living with it for so many years behind closed doors. Uh, I was just writing the poems probably for, for therapeutic reasons, and I didn't really have any intention of turning them into a collection. I would read them around town. I inadvertently became known as the autism poet in addition to being a germaphobe, so I've had lots of wonderful labels attached to myself. Um, I think after you know several years of reading them, I started submitting a couple here and there to various journals, and some of them got picked up, most of them didn't, and I just kept writing them when I needed to. I wasn't really thinking big picture. I wasn't really thinking, I'm going to tell our story like a memoir, but in poetic form. But eventually, when I had the opportunity to get it published, when a publisher wanted to look at it, that's what I realized I had the opportunity to do. I could write that mom memoir without writing a memoir. And that, to me, was the most important poetry, the most important thing poetry could do for me at the time. So did you find that you would have, for example, a particularly hard day and, you know, at the end of the day, you'd be, you know, thinking about what had happened and, and a poem would come to you? I mean, were these mostly after bad days or are, are there some good times recalled in there as well? I, I think they're at the end of almost every day. There's probably hundreds of those poems that aren't in the collection um, because that's the only way I know how to process life. Uh, I actually have a degree in anthropology as well, so ethnography is an interest of mine. So the idea of immersing myself in a culture and then being able to record that culture as sort of an honorary insider is something that's always appealed to me. I may not have been cognizant at the time that that's what I was within the autism culture. I was writing because I needed to write, but now I see that I'm sort of an ethnographer of autism. When you went through the process, you, you'd written these poems, and when you were thinking about maybe putting them into a collection, were there any any poems or any aspects of your life or your son's life that you were hesitant to sort of share with other people, to have others see? Oh, definitely. There's there's loathing in that collection. Uh, there's self-loathing. There's loathing for other. There's loathing of the disorder. There's borderline loathing of my son uh, because there were days, months, years that were that challenging. And so I think that's a difficult thing to lay bare. Whether you're doing it in a memoir or you're doing it poetically, everyone assumes that I is you in both of those spaces. So that's another way in which those genres are very similar. People are going to read that and assume that that is you speaking, and it is in those poems. And I think what I gave myself license to do, and hopefully other mothers and other family members and caregivers to do, was to admit that sometimes it is really ugly and it is really difficult. And it's it can be a brutal life, but it can also be beautiful. Was that a tough thing to, to accept for yourself? It was, but... I'm much more yin and yang now because of it. I'm much more ebb and flow. I'm much more decay and regeneration. I don't think that there's a day goes the day that goes by that I'm not considering those those binary oppositions and those forces and how they work together in my life and how they work together in the larger world. And it, it's given me an interesting lens on everything. Rosemary Dombrowski is founder of Rinky Dink Press and a senior lecturer at ASU's downtown campus. Her forthcoming collection of poems is called The Philosophy of Unclean Things. Rosemary, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Mark. 
Just ahead on KJZZ's Here and Now, we'll meet an Arizonan headed to Rio to compete in the Paralympics. That's up next as Here and Now continues. KJZZ is supported by City of Hope, striving to turn laboratory breakthroughs into treatments that can possibly outsmart cancer, helping patients become the person they were. More at cityofhope.org. Good morning. This is KJZZ's Here and Now on 91.5 FM. Partly cloudy today for the valley. We're looking for a high of 98 degrees, 50% chance for some showers, and there is a flash flood watch in effect for the valley until 11 o'clock this evening. In valley traffic northbound on I-17, a collision in the intersection at Cactus Road. NPR's Here and Now is coming up in less than 15 minutes. Did Donald Trump cross a legal line with his comment yesterday on the Second Amendment? We'll hear from a legal expert who says no. And a new coach and a new home seem to be paying off for the U.S. women's Olympic field hockey team. Here and Now from Boston starts at 12. Right now we have mostly cloudy skies in Phoenix and it is 92 degrees at 1149. It's Here and Now on KJZZ. I'm Mark Brody in Phoenix. Competition at the Rio Olympics is in full swing and will stay that way through the closing ceremonies next Sunday. But after the torch has been transferred, a new group of athletes will come to Rio for the Paralympics. ASU grad Alyssa Seeley is one of them. She's a paratriathlete, which includes running, swimming, and cycling, and she'll be doing that with a prosthesis below her left knee. And Alyssa, my understanding is that you've always been a pretty active person, like from a pretty young age. Is that right? Yes, I've always been very active. Um, at about two years old, my parents put me in dance class uh, to try to get some energy out of me. I love to run and swim and do the monkey bars and jungle gym, everything. So I've always been very active and have a lot of energy. And there was a time in your life, though, where you thought that maybe that wouldn't be possible anymore. Yeah, my freshman year of college, I went from being a happy, active student athlete and over the course of a few months I started having some severe medical issues to the point that chronic pain, um, fatigue and weakness had basically riddled my body and changed me from the runner triathlete to being bedridden some you know most days not being able to walk across my apartment let alone walk across campus and during that time I really wondered if I was ever going to be able to get my old self back. And what what was it? Because my understanding is that it took a little while to find the right diagnosis. Yeah, it took um, over a year and a half of seeing multiple doctors and specialists to finally get a right diagnosis. I was finally diagnosed with a group of conditions. Um, They're called Chiari 2 malformation, Basler invagination, and Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. That's a mouthful. Uh, Yes, it is. (laughs) So in layman's terms, let let me help out there. Basically, my the bottom portion of my brain, my cerebellum, is herniated out of my brain uh, or out of my skull and into my spinal column. Um, That herniation was putting a lot of pressure on the nerves and causing a lot of neurological issues. Um, And so the symptoms ranged from severe pain to passing out to episodes where I stopped breathing, numbness and tingling in my arms and legs, as well as as some other secondary conditions. And that sounds pretty serious. I mean, were you even thinking at that point when you were going through all of that, hey, I wonder if I'll ever be able to run again, much less compete in triathlons? Um, You know, going through it, seeing the doctors and the specialists and going through all the testing, 
it was so far from my mind. I felt so terrible that I couldn't even couldn't even think about making breakfast in the morning, let alone think about being out and competing again. Um, but as soon as I had a diagnosis and we had an answer um, and surgery was set, I definitely my perspective shifted. I you know I promised myself the morning of surgery that no matter what happened, I was going to start living again because for the past year and a half, I was alive, but I was really just surviving. I was no longer living. Now, there's a difference, though, between living your life again and being a a Paralympian. (laughs) Yeah, one would say. um, I never imagined where I would be today. Um, Honestly, when I was in rehab, all I could talk about was triathlon. We had collegiate nationals coming up in April, so just a little bit over seven months away. This was in August at the time, and all I could talk about was triathlon. I was going to do this triathlon. It was so important to me, and everybody else was just like, okay, I think this girl is crazy. But somewhere in me, I knew I would be able to do it. Um, Did I ever think I would be able to compete? Not particularly, and especially not at the level I am now, but... The journey's been a crazy one, and I'm so glad I've come this far. But that's got to be a fine line, though, right? I mean, especially with your doctors, that they want to be encouraging, yes, you know, you should aim for the stars, but at the same time, you got to kind of be realistic. And if it didn't happen, they kind of had to worry, and probably you had to worry, maybe your family as well, about what would that do to your mental state? Yeah, so when I was in the hospital, multiple times a day, I say I had what I called the reality talk. Um doctors, my surgeons, physical therapists, occupational therapists, everybody was all about, you know, okay, well, we have to look at reality now. This is how things are now. This is how it's going to be. This is this is your new reality. Um, and something in me knew that it really wasn't. Something in me knew that I was going to be back doing what I loved. If that meant, you know, staggering across the finish line at, you know, an 18-minute mile pace, I was going to be able to do it. And so, so, yeah, so I really just kept my head down and kept going and dreamed big and worked hard. Now, you ultimately had to have an amputation surgery, yes. I mean, you, you like just below, below your knee, is that right? Yeah, so um, a few years after my brain and spine surgery, the deficits left from that were pretty severe, especially on my left side. Um, it left so- something called spasticity and uh, dystonia and Basically, it just means the muscles aren't working the right way. They're really tense. Um, And so that was really pulling on my ankle, causing a lot of pain in my knee and my hip and just a lot of other issues as well. Um, You know, I went from running to going back to struggling walking, saw multiple surgeons, and we finally decided the best option was a below knee amputation. At that point, did you think, okay, look, it's been a a good run, but... Walking is probably going to be it for you. I'm not going to be competing. I'm not going to be running. I'm not going to be crossing any finish lines. You know, I had the I had the awesome chance prior to my amputation to meet a lot of athletes. Um, so going into it, I had no qualms about getting back to sport. Um, I knew for a fact I would be back out there. And really, I just hoped I would be back pain-free um, because I'd been dealing with so much pain prior to it. And so two weeks after my amputation, I was riding a bike with one leg. Um, Six weeks later, six, seven weeks later, something like that, I swam 1.2 miles as part of a relay team um, for a half Ironman triathlon. Uh, Three months later, I did my first 5K as an amputee, and a few months after that, I did my first triathlon as an amputee. Now, you have a a prosthetic leg at this point. Do you find it different doing the running and the biking and the the swimming with that? Does it feel differently now than it did before? Um, 
you know, it's hard to compare all the way back to when I had a normal foot, normal anatomy, normal legs, normal muscles. Um, that was so long ago, and so many things have changed. So it's really hard to compare to that. Um, I'm sure it is different. But after my surgery, the foot I was left with and all of that, having a prosthetic has actually made being active so much easier. It allows me, I mean, the biggest thing is it allows me to participate pain-free. And so that's huge. But on top of that, it allows me to participate without the fear of breaking my ankle or snapping my knee or anything like that. And so going from how to dysfunctional my foot was to a prosthetic was not a very hard transition for me. Before you got sick, did you ever think that you would be participating in the Olympics? Like, was that a goal for you when you were running triathlons? You know, I think every kid has that dream, you know, when they're watching the Olympics on TV in the summer. Um, And I remember in 2000, sitting there with my family, we were watching swimming and I wish I remembered what event it was, but I don't. Um, But an American won and I was just like, whoa, that would be so cool to go to the Olympics. But I was like, I don't do any sports that are in the Olympics, so I guess that's not going to happen. But when I started triathlon, I definitely, my first few races, I finished pretty well. Um, I had a pro card in my sight, and then I was going to just kind of see where it went from there. You know, I fell in love with the sport right away. I happened to be pretty good at it. And so would it ever, ever have happened without all of the medical issues? I don't know. Um, But... I know I would have been involved in the sport in one way or another. Do you think that in some way having that goal before you got sick, do you think that helped you at all sort of work your way through it and give you the confidence that, yeah, I was pretty good at this before and there's really no reason why I can't be good at this. And, you know, maybe I can't be in the Olympics, but hey, the Paralympics are are pretty good too. Yeah, I think having that goal prior to becoming sick and having my amputation on my brain and spine surgery and all of that definitely helped motivate me. Like I said, it's all I could talk about. It's all I wanted to get back to. Um, That was my life, and uh, I couldn't picture it any other way. And so I think it definitely motivated me to get out there faster than I would have. I think it helped push me beyond a lot of limits that had been set for me, Um, as well as I never stopped to think, oh, I can't do this or I can't do that because of my diagnosis. I was just like, I'll find a way to do it. It's not a big deal. Um, I had done it before. I knew I could do it again. So it definitely instilled some confidence in me and helped move me forward. Now, you are also one of the athletes uh, featured this year in ESPN, the magazine's body issue. How did that come to be? Um, I I got a call from ESPN back in April. And initially when they called me, I was like, are you sure you're talking to the right person? (laughs) Um, I was very shocked uh, that anybody knew who I was, let alone ESPN. So uh, we had a chat and they, you know, gave me a lot of information. I was already familiar with the issue and I've been a big fan of the issue. I've really appreciate the art form and all that they do to promote sport and different body types in sport. You don't, you know, we don't see it as you now have to be this tall, lean, 0% body fat athlete anymore with two arms, two legs and all of that. And so I think they really pushed the boundary in that way. And so I was honored to be a part of it. Alyssa Seely will be participating in the triathlon for the U.S. in the Paralympics in Rio. Alyssa, thank you so much and good luck in Rio. Thank you so much.
And that's it for today's edition of KJZZ's Here and Now. Thanks to Sarah Ventry, Bruce Drummond, and Madeline Stack for their help with today's program. If you missed any part of today's interviews or just want to hear the whole thing again, you can listen online later this afternoon at kjzz.org. Or better yet, download the free KJZZ mobile app to your smartphone. You can podcast KJZZ's Here and Now and the show whenever you'd like. NPR's Here and Now is next on member-supported KJZZ, FM, Phoenix, and HD. I'm Mark Brody in Phoenix, sitting in today for Steve Goldstein. Thanks so much for listening. KJZZ is supported by the Nina Mason Pulliam Charitable Trust, working with friends of Verde River Greenway to improve the river's watershed health and provide solutions to alleviate Arizona's current water issues. Details at verderivergreenway.org.